Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. I'm here with John and Matt. We're going to discuss David Bentley Hart's tradition and apocalypse. You know, maybe this is a little bit different within the Eucharist. You know, we could talk about that too, because that I think that that is. This brings some of this stuff to a head with someone like Paul, who is, you know, very sort of anti-institutionalist, right? So I, I would be interested to know because Hart is, you know, it's it's a complicated thing, right? Because if the Eucharist, you actually, Paul, you said this in your blog today, and I thought, oh yeah, that's it. If Christ is incarnate in the Eucharist, which I believe that he is, right? And I'm sure John believes that he is, and we're in different communions, but but yet we're sharing, this is my point, this is part of my point. So we're all three in different communities, right? So Paul is a, you know, what, what are you, Paul? <laughs> I'm a Christian. You're a Christian. Paul's a Christian. Uh, I'm not, but I'm trying to be one. I'm trying to be one. Um, you know, you're a guardian of you. <laughs> Paul or uh, John is, you know, he's Episcopalian. And so obviously, like, there's a mystical, my point here is, is that we're a part of different, you know, traditions. We all take, you know, what we understand to be the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist or Holy Communion or whatever. Yet we're all, and so maybe in some sort of formal pronouncement, they would say, well, Matt, you know, you can't have, you can't share the Eucharist with John and Paul, you know? And it's like, I think that's what hard is saying too. It's like the communion, and, and that's not to say I don't care about communion because I, I love, you know, the Eucharist is the most, you know, besides our neighbor, like C.S. Lewis said, is the most precious sort of wonderful thing that we could ever uh, come in contact. We said it the other way around, actually. Yes. The, 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 Besides the, the Eucharist, our neighbor is uh, where we see Christ. Yeah, yeah, because we're talking about the embodiment, right, of Christ. But I think in a mystical way, obviously, we're in communion. Us three are participating in the life of the risen Christ, apart from sort of like an institutional sort of stamp that says, "Yes, you guys are you guys are doing it right." And so, yeah, I love I love the Orthodox Church and the aesthetics and all this stuff and, and whatever. And I do believe that the whenever we ask the Holy Spirit to consecrate, you know, that, that this is truly your body, this is truly your blood. It's like, yeah, I believe that. You know, uh, maybe my imagination is stronger or, or whatever, you know, we've talked about that, but, but I don't think that that's what it is. I think that there's a mystical, that all of creation, all of creation is, is a theophany. But what I mean to say, and when we're having this conversation about scripture, tradition, institutionalized sort of Christianity, the sacraments and things like this, I don't know that Christ can be located in, in a particular time and place and dogma and institution because he's uncircumscribed he's everywhere he's omnipotent he's omnipresent he's he's everywhere present and filling all things um i think the tendency is to try to reduce him to a particular locale or or doctrine or whatever else it's just impossible and so hart would want to say yeah and so maybe you looked at vandandic you know indian philosophy to elucidate some of the truths that are implicit in nicaea you know, maybe we look to other traditions that because Christ, you know, the, the Tao or whatever you want to call it, you know, that that he's 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 everywhere present and filling all things. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful uh-huh. vision, I think. So, I, yeah, speaking of our Lord who brought a sword and not peace to divide people. Actually, like I was thinking about how provocative this could get, though. I mean, there's a way of talking about tradition and it, it is sort of it's open enough. It's vague enough. My question for Matt, and he could, you, you can ask me mean questions too, because this is, this is not not a nice question. But so you're in a communion yeah. where, in order to confect the sacrament of the Eucharist, you have to be a priest ordained by a bishop. Mm-hmm. How far 
can you lose the institution? Uh, how far can you transgress against the institutional form of that church uh, before you indeed actually lose the sacrament as well? Yeah, no, no, and I, I have no idea how to ask. It's, it's too hard of a question. That's a good question well, I mean, for David think, Bentley Hart, who is of the same right, communion yeah. as you. And that's kind of the surprising thing about the book for me. I can't, this was the perfect book for me. This just expressed, well, this is, this is it, you know, this, that, the uh -oh. place from which he's writing. And that is that he's writing this and holding very loosely to a kind of Eastern Orthodoxy. In other words, he's identifying himself as part of that communion. He wants to acknowledge, yes, I believe in the offices of the church. He does not specify why he does or to the extent that he does just to kind of vaguely acknowledges that i i like the way he loosely holds to the institution kind of the necessities of the institution and yet it is loose in other words he's able to do that and then fully critique the institution all i know is that i have whatever the case may be or whatever the, the true answer to john's question may be the only thing that I know is, is that I have communion with Christ right now with you guys. I have communion with Christ when I sit down and I read Hart's book and I try to, and I try to meet Christ there in those pages. I have communion with Christ whenever I do my prayers in the morning. I have communion with Christ when I sit down to eat uh, breakfast with my, uh, with my wife. I have communion with Christ when I go to with my hospice patients and I visit with them. I have communion with Christ in the Eucharist. So I don't know the answer to your question, you know, in a, in a sort of formal way. Yeah, actually, Paul mentioned this to me when we were talking about this book, I was pitching him the podcast to him. I said, You're, you'll really like this book. And Paul said, well, how does he write this as an Eastern Orthodox person? Yeah. <laughs> theologian. I don't think David Hart really is. An, I don't know how, in what sense, he's an Eastern Orthodox theologian. <laughs> uh, I hesitated to use that phrase. Yeah. But anyway. Yeah. And my response to Paul was, oh, actually, I don't think there's any big trouble there. And as Hart points out, our Roman brothers and sisters really bear the brunt of the burden because they want to be able to identify tradition with the magisterium, which, uh, you know, is just has these issues of being inconsistent and, uh, dare I say, wrong at least once when they said anglican orders were null and void uh anyway what do you think john what do you think what's the answer to your question to you specific to the question about sacraments and institution yeah yeah it's a tough question and i'd like to hear paul well maybe let's do paul first let's hear let john go uh, it's john's want, question okay, let him go john first it's a tough question so let's let john go and then i want to hear paul because i'm just saying i don't know i just I, I have communion with Christ in all sorts of different ways. And it's yeah, not it's a very Lutheran answer. I was very disappointed in this sort of, what is that Luther's ubiquity of Christ or whatever? Uh, because certainly you wouldn't think that that communion is the same as the communion you have in the Eucharist, or they might kick you out. I don't know. Well, no, because I would want to, I would want to, I would definitely want to make a distinction between the communion that I have with you guys and a sacrament. Yeah. Right? I would say there's varying degrees of participation in Christ, right? And so this is one form, this conversation here. You know, the sacrament of unction is another. Uh, Eucharist is another. The sacrament of marriage is another. And it's an ongoing sort of daily, I, I think, you know, sort of unfolding. But it is true that it, you don't specify seven, correct, in the East? I don't know. Oh, okay. You're not going to answer. I, I think it's mine. I mean, I don't, I don't know. You know, I only know certain people and orthodoxy so I, I think it's Meyendorf maybe who says there's they don't limit the number of sacraments yeah 
But I guess my point is, is that the most, more, probably the most mystical experience I've ever had was the first time I took communion in the Orthodox Church. And I, and I had a distinct feeling of they have a tradition where you hold a candle and you're like the first person in line when you're a catechumen and it's your first communion, you know? And I had the thought of myself, like, do I belong here? Am I taking a, am I taking a leap that I can never, you know, I don't want to leap away from, from Paul. I don't want to leap away from John. I don't want to leap away from the rest of, the, of my Christian brothers and sisters and stuff like that. And I feel like I, I may be on the precipice. I, I was sort of having all this, these thoughts in my head as I was standing there. And then I had this deep sense of communion with Christ where I felt welcomed and an overwhelming, I had an overwhelming sense of, of I guess I would call it hospitality or, or being welcomed. And it was almost like uh, Christ was bidding me to come, to come to his table, you know, to come uh, commune with him. It was a wonderful experience. It's beyond my ability to, to like articulate it. But I would say that, that that was kind of like a microcosm of of what should be, you know, every every time we have communion with the Lord, right? It should be like this realization that I'm approaching the body and blood of Christ in a different way now than I am in this podcast conversation, right? But to answer your question, it's like, I don't know, because this is, I, I don't mean to be blasphemous here, but this is just as precious to me. To love God and love neighbor, I think, are the same thing, right? Uh, in some in some way, and so yeah, like I, I look forward to communion. I prepare myself for it the best that I can, you know. I I try to take it serious and all that stuff. But man, meeting Christ, the risen, I meet the risen Christ in you guys too, you know, in, in a way that I maybe in a different way than, than a communion, right? But I think that you can meet the risen Christ again. Like whenever, if you read, you know, maybe make the sign of the cross, ask the Holy Spirit to help you, to commune with you, to open up the text to you. And, and so it is with anything that we, the, the way that we live, if he's everywhere present and filling all things, then, then our job, I think, is to, is to try to have eyes to see him, ears to hear him, feet and hands to serve him and things like that. But I know that that's an inadequate answer. To your question, but I'd like to know what you're what what you're thinking. Well, actually, I think so. I liked what I liked about this book so much is just the sort of strong argument that to pick anything in history and say it's a necessity that it happened this way is indefensible. To even have say the threefold order of ministry: bishops, priests, deacons, sort of thing, to say that that is uh, of necessity the way it was going to be, or had to be, or according to the wisdom of God seems like an indefensible thing to say. Of course, all of the, what do you, I mean, I say traditional, traditional in a different sense, forms of Christianity do say that. So um, it's an odd thing. How does that, does it just come about? Is that helping us towards this antecedent final cause? I don't know. I don't think that being anti-institutional helps you in any way. I don't think that in, in actually what's being revealed in Christ does away with that sort of, any kind of, orders or actually this would be a very eastern orthodox idea it's not like as in once you're in heaven or once you're in the presence of god that there's sort of a grace dump and now there's no distinguishing between everybody and everybody just shares in the same amount of holiness in other words there is in in a sense uh, an ongoing process of getting to know god even in the particularity of who we are and the lives that we live i don't see our social arrangements regardless of what you call them to be things that are inconsequential to that. Now, of course, Paul said, I mean, the New Testament, St. Paul says things like uh, neither male nor female, neither Jew nor Greek, neither uh, all be one in Christ, right? Neither slave nor free. So there is, a, at least in a sense, where becoming united to Christ does do away with uh, maybe violent differences. Maybe you could call each of those things, at least as way the way we conceive them, mm -hmm. as sort of being violent differences. It, 
it is interesting to think about what what is Hart's Hart doesn't want to identify any one tradition with like the sense of the tradition. And I think that's a strength. But if you've read his stuff or listened to his talks, you know that he doesn't identify Calvinism as even being Christian. So, uh, you know, he's, his harshest, now I don't know if that's just him being uh, funny or hyperbolic or whatever, but I think maybe for the way I would look at this, I think you could add caveat to what he's doing in the sense that maybe there there isn't clear breaks in the tradition, but you could talk about decline and different times of decline and progress, as in you can see where some dogmas are definitely a deformation of what's come before, or a deformation of what is to come. They're they're not representing or showing the glory of Christ well. It always seems that it's going to be sort of a personal project, what you pick. People who are more comfortable in some sort of tradition that's intelligible as that, that makes those sorts of claims, are going to pick things they're uncomfortable with that are usually outside of the realm of doing any damage to that tradition. So when I was reading the book, that was one of the questions I was wondering, is Hart saying anything that really does damage to Orthodox, Eastern Orthodoxy as a thing? Uh, I don't think so. I think it does a lot of damage to traditionalists, and he describes them very well as people who usually pick you know, one of the latest things and one of the earliest things, and then they combine them into an oversimplification and think, oh, here it is. Uh, and I think you could do that with any, I mean, that's sort of even the to talk about the magisterial reformation, people that aren't Catholics or Orthodox for a second. You have both the Anabaptists and, say, Lutherans and Calvinists. What's going on there uh, is always sort of a, an attempt to grasp at something that was very early and supposedly more simple. So for Luther, it's like the Holy Spirit will enable you to read Scripture accurately. Yeah. And then with his own time, what is very late. So you still have forms and structures of the church, et cetera. Oddly enough, you have a church-state arrangement that gets intensified. And that's what's seen as traditional. You know, this is more traditional than the Catholics who have deviated, the medieval, late medieval Catholics who have somehow deviated. The Anabaptists do a very similar thing. Uh, of course, it's with believer's baptism. It's this practice that they think they've picked out of Scripture which may be a dubious claim anyway. Uh, there's you know, different arguments, I guess, going either way. But and they want to say this is one of the earliest things, that what faith is is actually a choice. But of course, what they're marrying is a practice they found in Scripture with their own uh, ideas, emerging ideas about what does it mean to be an individual, what does it mean to have faith, and eventually with peace. But even that, is it accidental or is it of necessity? Uh, I guess we would say, if it's of necessity, I would agree with Paul that it's actually because this is what's being revealed. Uh, this is the apocalypse of Christ, is that peace is uh, the real presence of God, something like that. But I think for them, historically, you might say it's actually accidental that they stumble upon that at, at that time. How do you make the connection, then? This is a question that Hart, I think, says he's unwilling to answer, and wisely so, as Paul has said. How do you make the connection between uh, providence and history. Well, there's no way of doing it without being arbitrary. So simply because of our finite stance in history. But and I how, guess I'm also <laughs> trying not to answer the question. I, it's a, I, yeah. I asked the question because it is so provocative. I mean, I'm a happy Anglican, but I also realize that there are, of course, Anglicans who don't think anything of tradition. They think that every day is a new day and are, are probably more restorationist-minded than many restorationists or whatever. And then you've got, of course, uh, Anglicans who are just strictly uh, in Blondell's sense, 
historicists. They think everything's just an accident of history, and so we can make it up as we go now. And then you've got uh, strident traditionalists within Anglicanism as well. So yeah. what do you think, Paul? Yeah, no, or, Matt, go ahead. Do you have a response? You, 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 uh, uh, definitely, you definitely avoided answering that question. <laughs> I thought I was going to ask a question. I didn't say I was going to answer. It's a tough question. You know, I don't know. But Paul, maybe Paul will give us the. Uh, he'll unveil. Well, I wondered if Paul thinks that actually the argument in the book does do damage to these. Uh, what do we say? Small t traditions. I don't know. No, and, and let, as, let as, me, a, uh... as a small footnote, I just wanted to add because John said something way along back that I don't want to miss. Because, and, but I want you to talk about this first. That John said that you may have, in fact, misunderstood. Oh, I was joking when he said he read the book and he thought, how could an Eastern Orthodox person write this? I like it. It sounds like what I think. And I said, well, maybe you misunderstood. Oh, okay. Understood. Right. Yeah, it was a joke. Okay. All right. Gotcha. All right. So now let's go back to the answer to John's question. I actually have, I wrote this long before I encountered Hart. It describes Hart's project before I knew of his project in a sense, but it's my own, I laid out then, what my own understanding of the tradition is. And that is that it's hard to trace the survival of the fullness of the gospel in particular periods of church history, and it's to assume that you can, that it's fully traceable either historically or institutionally in the tradition, I think is just a category mistake. It would be to assume that the victors, that is, those in power, are capable of writing the history of losers. And by losers, I think we're talking about all of those who take up the cross of Christ. So that's step one is that, in other words, this thing that we call Christianity is by its very nature, like Christ himself, crucified outside the city, and the powers that be would erase it. Now, having said that, to presume that Constantine or the, you know, the Dark Ages or American evangelicalism has wiped out any trace of the authentic gospel, well, that presumes that these forms, Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, Protestantism, you know, with their institutions and formulations, that they are the sole purveyors of the gospel. And I don't believe that. I assume that the word of the cross is, as Paul describes it, a suspension of the symbolic order in which the law and its oppressive force is rendered inactive. It is, I think, that we can spell out that part of the unfolding of what the gospel is, is a, re a further realization of this oppressive, suppressive, legal thing, law that Paul, the symbolic order. And the symbolic order is that place where things are thought to endure. This is the place where history is written. This is the place where people who imagine that there is a continuity to history, they would find it there, which is the great irony. How could you find a continuity in this order maintained through the established hierarchy, the arche of this world. I would say this is precisely what the gospel is not. And so the place that we're going to go to understand the gospel the is not then in history, 
It's not in doctrines per se, but it is then in this place in which that very thing is suspended. And I think this then gets at the peace of Christ. Yeah, I got a question. So when you say history there, do you mean the formal study of it? What do you mean exactly, as in the subject of history? The 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 way it's been written? Yeah, what's been written, what's been recorded, what has been, in other words, yeah, obviously there is is the lived reality that we may not have access to in the symbolic order in the uh the method in the uh written tradition i think you know it's interesting the trouble what that made me think of is it sounds actually in some ways very bartian if what christian you know actually i have two questions another question the full you mentioned the phrase the fullness of the gospel do you think the fullness of the gospel is found in any time or place it's unfolding okay by that you understand that are there necessities Are there things we can point to? Well, I think that's what who Christ is. Even the confrontation between Christ and those who killed him. In one sense, that's a necessity that comes about due to human evil. But in another sense, we understand, yeah, but it nonetheless is is a necessary confrontation. And so, yes, there are these necessities and there are these places from which this unfolding occurs in the life of Christ. And so I think we cannot relinquish certain aspects of the death, the resurrection, the life of Christ, the teaching of Christ, that in that we do, in fact, uh, encounter what is necessary to the gospel, but not to say that that fullness is worked out. And this is my understanding that theology can make progress, that we're all making progress, that this thing that is unfolding is unfolding in our lives, as we're coming to realize in a more deep fashion, you know, for some of us, it may be we're we're realizing things that other people were learning through them. And, but it, it may also be that we're at the cutting edge of something and the gospel is opening up new avenues of thinking, new territories. That's part of what we mean by this fullness, that it is an unfolding fullness that we should expect to find all around us so that we really can penetrate and understand and make progress and not presume to simply look backward. And so that's the sense that uh, this idea of restoration, this return, purifying, you know, this too can be very dangerous. Uh, this is kind of the Nazi instinct. We need, to, we need to purify the race. We need to get back to the blood and soil of a pure Germany. Well, I think we can almost do the same thing Uh, with the New Testament. That is, too, a a closure, a danger. And I'm describing, of course, the movement that that I've come out of. So we we need to recognize the fullness is this unfolding fullness. The deposit of the faith is given. We understand it's there, and it's unfolding, and we're realizing it in an open-ended sense. And that I like that. I think that I have understood heart. I think I actually described his project before he did it, because my own understanding is it's impossible for the tradition to have the continuity that we would expect because of the very nature of the gospel. The the thing I thought of first was, I think it has to still be explained, not that his book doesn't do this, but in your own explanation, it kind of goes beyond the purview of his book. And that's to say that if Christ is known in, you know, these encounters— how is that also truly a tradition in the sense that how is there a formal thing passed on in a community through history? 
I don't know how you would explain that. It's certainly this isn't a critique of your project. I just think that's the next step to align with what Hart is doing. So part of what his book is doing also is to say it's not enough just to critique traditionalisms, but also to say there it, this idea, the theological category of tradition is a real category. And so in, in some sense, you do have to have this recourse. And of course, his test case is the Council of Nicaea. And he makes, I think, a wonderful argument for why the Council of Nicaea is part of the tradition. But by your own definition, you could just as easily leave it out because you'd simply say, well, this is the first council called by the empire. So I think you need to explain that more fully. But but you understand, sure, I, I, mean, don't, I don't leave it out. The, what is happening, you know, I think that Nicaea is an interesting case. And I like the way that Hart puts it. It is kind of a proscription more than a prescription. That is that we have an open-ended aspect to the council that we can go back and say, yeah, it said it this way. And this is actually Sarah Coakley's project. She says, you know, we have this kind of hierarchical unfolding at Nicaea. She's not in any way saying that she wants to, to change it. But what she's describing is that there is a, a sense in which that gives rise then to processions in the Godhead that, that will in fact result in a subordinationism. And of course, she's talking about a dual subordinationism, uh, the subordination of the Son to the Father, but also the subordination of the, the Spirit. But then also she's describing that in terms of the subordination of women. I think all we're saying is, oh, the, the Council of Nicaea is a formula that, and that, you know, Hart's very careful in describing this. It, it is on the order of what, you know, here is the, the, the signs indicating the direction to go, but in no, in no way does it encapsulate the fullness. We can even go beyond that. And this is J. Denny Weaver, but he says, and at Nicaea, we can also locate things that were not talked about. This is Matt's point with my, which I've said about book reviews, you know, the way, to, the way to do any book review is to say, yeah, but he didn't talk about this. And of course, that's kind of J. Denny Weaver's critique of the Council of Nicaea. Well, there's certain things they're not going to, to address. And maybe that is a failure, the, uh, the nonviolence, the peaceableness of the, the gospel. For, from an Anabaptist perspective, the Council of Nicaea is inadequate. But is it adequate? Can we take that and say, oh, that this is perfectly, you know, for what it was doing, it did it well. Is it in some way the final and full? No, it's not. That we need to, this needs more unfolding. You realize within 60 years, the, the church said that. Yeah. <laughs> it's not the final and full. Yeah, yeah. That, uh, that, but, that, but the other point of this is that it does destroy what came before it. Just real quick, John, that's what yeah, I was going to Go ask. ahead, Matt. It might be helpful for the listener, because we've been really talking about traditionalism, but I think this is going to be a nice segue, although it's pretty late into the conversation. Uh, like, what does Hart mean by apocalyptic? Because I think that's what you're about to talk about. So, you know, what is what is Hart getting at when he's talking about the apocalyptic? Ah, good question. Well, I mean, I, I, the idea, of course, is this is the unveiling of Christ in all things. I mean, this is the idea of saying what tradition is, is this antecedent final causality, so that you don't have the full deposit in the beginning. And then always a looking back towards preserving that thing, but is actually an unfolding and, and real real room for development. Meaning that Nicaea marks uh, a new thing. <laughs> uh, 
uh, home, you know, these words, homoousius, homoousius, this is a new thing. It's not that it was, oh, it's already there back there somewhere and just preserving the gospel, but this is the direction Christianity is taking. And uh, as the subtitle says, it is, this was the future, a new Christian belief. Right. I guess that would be the other thing that I would ask about what you're articulating, Paul, or where are these new ideas going to come from? Or, or another way of saying it, I don't think the Council of Nicaea does marry the church. I don't think it does marry the church to empire. Um, that doesn't seem to be what actually happens in 325, maybe in 381, but not in 325. And so the thing is, just to say that the tradition becomes tied up in imperialism doesn't mean that that's anyway the future of Christian belief. And you could even talk about it being still these past explanations that are going to be added to, transformed, maybe even nearly negated, but give birth to something new. Uh, it doesn't make them all of a sudden not a part of the tradition. In the grand scheme of things, you know, if the church is still in its infant stages, which it very well could be, right? If we, if the world continues on for another ten thousand years, the you know, future generations may look back and say, well, that was, you know, providentially God used empire and things like that to spread, you know, the gospel throughout the world. And in that sense, it doesn't make it, you know, good. And we don't want to do what Hart said and say, well, because it happened, it must have been the Holy Spirit. Yeah. But I think it's a good question what John's asking about the apocalyptic, because it does seem to entail what I said earlier about a sublation. In other words, like it's a destruction of the, it's what Christ does, right? He comes, he says, well, don't think that I came to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So maybe we could use that uh, sort of intelligibility, you know what I mean? To, to help uh, us to understand how this thing is unfolding, that it's not a full sort of uh, obliteration of it, but it's a, it's a locating, a relativizing, a lifting, a teleological suspension a fulfilling, you know, of the old with the fullness of, of Christ. So it very well could be then that the work that we're continuing to do now will sort of destroy maybe what Paul might even consider like the apostate church. Like, I don't know if you would go that far, Paul, to say that American evangelicalism is sort of in league with a, an apostate. You wouldn't go that far. There is some of this stuff that we probably needs to be destroyed so that, that Christ can emerge in a fuller uh, sense, right? So, so that he, you know, the whole point is for God to fill all, to be all in all. That is what the apocalyptic inbreaking, I think, of Christ means and entails. You know what I think is funny about all, like Hart, this whole discussion about with the particular traditions in reference to this book. You know, if Hart was going in his own words, like if he wasn't going to be Eastern Orthodox, it's not like he would pick some anti-institutional Christian tradition. It would be what you say he would become. I uh, would convert to Jainism, Matt. Yeah, or something ridiculous. You know, he says something ridiculous like this. Uh, you know, yeah, that, that's that is what that is what he's saying. This is just to say that I don't think he thought this book was in any way tearing down institutional Christianity, but rather forms of traditionalism. That uh, I'm mean, actually, I guess you even have them in you have you might you probably have traditionalists in anti-institutional forms of Christianity as well. Is all I was going to say. I mean, obviously, the people that come to mind for me are like. Anglo-Catholic friends that I have and rad-trad Roman Catholics and, you know, Eastern Orthodox people who think that all there is is the, you know, Neopolemite synthesis or whatever. But of course, even a hundred years ago, the thought was so much more diverse and open to change, open to new things, mm -hmm. uh, while also preserving and building off the old. And I, I think that's sort of Hart's point is like within Nicaea or even Constantinople, you have in these, especially in the Chalcedonian definition, I mean, this is just beautiful. You have these formulations that just give rise to endless amounts 
of theologizing. It would never do damage to these formulations because they're able to sustain the sort of endless discussion. Why would you come along and say, oh, well, that's the product of empire. It's got to be done away with, or that's the, that's the institutionalized version of the story that needs to be done away with. Don't we wish we were all Aryans? And I'm not accusing you of saying this, Paul, but I've heard this in classes. This is the sort of discussion you run into in the academy. It's a sort of historicism to the extent that everything is just accidents of history. And of course, if you were going to say there are no accidents of history, it's just because the powerful always win or something like that. And so that's all, there's a whole lot of folks who think all that Nicaea, Constantinople, Chalcedon, this tradition is, is nothing more than uh, an exercise of power. You know, I think that's a very sad way of thinking about this, that Hart doesn't actually take up. In other words, he seems to be saying that this even older, more venerable tradition was not as fruitful. So in Jack, I mean, here's really radical for some, right? So then to take concepts and forms of thought from Greek philosophy, we certainly enhanced the Christian tradition. Uh, that's a part of Hart's argument as well. Yeah, I think. And now he wants to do this with Eastern thought. I mean, that's a, another yeah. part of the drive of this book that we haven't really talked about. Well, that's and we, and we should, because I think that if you look at the trajectory of Hart's authorship, the, I think that this book fits in very nicely. If you look at kind of the things that he's been writing about, in other words, that like, I don't think the universalism is like ancillary to his understanding or something like this. It's no, not like not, yeah. it's, it's central. Right. So he, so the apocalyptic inbreaking that he's talking about is a very specific thing. And that is, is that all shall be saved, that God will be all in all. And so traditionalism resists that notion, right? By, by, by its very nature, it's exclusionary. It's, it's limited. It's only this, not this, you know? And so it's a sort of fundamentalism that I think that Hart is very resistant, you know, against. And so, because I think that he really does believe that the historical unfolding is Christ becoming slowly but surely all in all. He's filling the academy. He's filling, and it might not always feel like that or seem like that, but he's uh, that, that through the crosses that Paul described earlier, that people are taking up all over the world and the suffering and all this stuff, that that God is in breaking in surprising and wonderful and, and unimaginable ways, surprising ways, that that's what apocalyptic is. It's a sort of surprise. Oh, wait, wow, God is saving the entire creation. Wow, you know, that's, uh, that's awesome. But I think that this book fits well into that because I, I would guess that I know he's going to begin writing on eschatology and, and things like this. So he has a larger project in mind. He has a philosophy of mind project that's coming that I think that he, he's slowly, even back to like atheist delusions, right? He's really building yeah. this sort of case for... Yeah, it's prefaced on a classical uh, notion of who God is in metaphysical terms. <laughs> it's a... Yeah. It, his own project has a teleology. I mean, his own project really is like an unfolding of what I think that he's trying to say. The atheists really are deluded. He does the New Testament, which he has a second edition coming out that he's get, you know, where he's talking about what his vision and what he thinks Christianity truly is. That uh, the tradition, because he's, in other words, he's coming at different forms of authority, science, scripture, tradition, science. He's going to do the philosophy of mind, where I think that what he's going to say is, is that, you know, the very nature of consciousness and the world sort of out there, a very Lonerganian sort of thing, it seems to indicate that the most plausible answer to that is some sort of teleological... Uh, it is a, a sort of proof of God, not not in a rationalist sense, but yes. Right. And so so he. it's almost like this book is a necessary step. Uh, to you got to kind of dismantle the notion that there's this, that what Christianity is at its core is this sort of exclusive fundamentalist sort of thing that that militates against his larger point which he is not he is his vision he's not saying that 
apocalyptosis is some sort of thing that's like, well, you can you can have it, take it or leave it. He's saying no, that it's contrary. Now, whether you agree with him or not, this is what he's saying mm-hmm. is that. It, no, to, to say that, that that all shall be saved is sort of a side thing. You know, it's like, no, that's to misunderstand the the, the the apocalyptic nature of the inbreaking of Christ into creation so that all, you know, that humanity really will be deified, that we really will be united with Christ, that all creation is groaning out and longing, and you know, in some sense, to, for its final end. In that context, we have to discuss what it means to be apocalyptic, that these things really are being demolished and destroyed and exploded so that Christ, because they're false, Truth is what's mysterious because it's infinite, you know. And so these 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 sort of limited thought forms and things like this, like they need to be like. In other words, Nicaea, you need to be limited. You need to say, okay, this is what it is, and this is what it is. And yeah, as an Orthodox Christian, to answer your earlier question, it's like, well, part of what it means is is you accept the authority of the traditions, right? That you say, yeah, I agree. I agree that you know that, that icons are actually they're not just a side thing. That they're not just it's like no, it's actually a, something that we need. And Coakley talks about that too in her book that you know we it helps us to redirect our gaze, you know, towards the heavenly, towards the spiritual instead of the earthly and fleshly and things like this. That part of apocalyptic inbreaking, like there there was a bit, you know, there was a kind of class, and they were saying. No, burn the, you know, burn the, break the statues, burn the stuff. But Paul, part of your project is, is to locate sort of maybe it's like American, you know, Christianity and to deconstruct it, call it, you know, demolish it. A pot, you're, it's, it's, you're introducing hopefully like the, I know you did to me, it was an apocalyptic sort of inbreaking into my own thought forms that is an infinite process. You know, that's, that's amazing. That's a joyful, that is the gospel. You know, that's the good news is that, the crisis broken in to history, that that victory, that that restoration, that recapitulation, that restitution, you know, whatever you want to call it, is being worked out in things like you know slavery being dismantled, hopefully you know the oppression of women, you know all this stuff. It's still in process, no doubt about it, and, it, and sometimes it looks very bleak, quite frankly. But our hope is is that Christ will fill all in all, and that that for heart can't just be kind of like a well, maybe he will, maybe he won't. It's like, no, that is the scriptures. That is First Corinthians 15. That is the crux of Paul's, uh-huh. you know, yeah. Paul's argument, you know, of right. what Christianity is. And he's saying, if you relinquish that, if you relinquish some of this stuff, you really have relinquished the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So some of it, to me, Paul, the question you keep asking, it's like, well, the one thing that's like that you have to have is that Christ is Lord. And then to unpack what that must mean that what does the word christ mean what does lord mean what does that mean that christ is lord and for heart it means that god will be all in all. and that's yeah, yeah the word apocalyptic and how we define that is key and of course this is a reading of the new testament an apocalyptic reading this is a reading of paul especially around romans and galatians that what it means to be apocalyptic is that there is a breaking open of the law of the symbolic order of the cosmos in a sense not the the good creation of god but the cosmic order that has been put into place by people and this cosmic symbolic order is broken open by what we call apocalyptic it is an apocalyptic revelation that is that it does not build upon the law. It doesn't take the law and work from there. It doesn't even, in a sense, it's not even building upon Judaism. It is a a reinterpretation. It's an opening up. Here is the center, the unfolding of the meaning of it all. What is integral to apocalypticism is this notion of the undoing 
of a symbolic order of the principalities and powers and not a dependence upon those powers, but in fact, a suspension of the oppression that is entailed in those powers. Maybe in the same way that Christ is fulfilling Judaism, you know, mm-hmm. that those, those things that happen for our instruction and things like this, it's like, well, Christ is the fulfillment of, of all those, the stories, you know, that apart from him are pretty unintelligible, right? And so it is that sort of like the telos of all of, of all of what Christ is doing, that he's filling in the same way that he's fulfilling Judaism, what it means to be human, that even even all of creation, like mm-hmm. that's the goal, yeah. the goal for God to be all in all. Hart does this, you know, and he's finding a coherence in his depiction of salvation is in his depiction of Christ. He does this with the, you know, the Genesis story. Well, this comes to make sense. It is lifted up, but you could say that about the whole, in other words, that's what's happening throughout the Old Testament. But what, what I would say then in part that once we see this in regard to the tradition, in other words, his treatment of the tradition is one then that we need to carry over to everything else, and I'm thinking here specifically of Japan, that there may be the tendency to imagine, oh, that things function differently, you know, that Hart talking about a pure Shintoism or the uniqueness of the Japanese people. In other words, it's almost like he's depicting a depositing of an understanding outside of Christianity that is in some way more pure or in some way free of the pollutions that he finds within Christian tradition. What I'm afraid he may be failing to see is that these traditions, too, are subject to the same sorts of imperialism, the same sorts of oppressive forces that, in fact, make, for example, Japanese-ness or Japanese uniqueness, or Shintoism, that he describes, you know, a pure Shintoism. Oh, there is no such thing. There is no such thing as, you know, an originary, non-hybrid understanding. And so I think what he needs to do, and what we all need to do, is recognize that this lesson that we've learned about Christian tradition is just to be applied across the board that this is true uh, of what people are, of what human institutions are, and how they function. And we should not expect to find some pure form, you know, some undiluted or unpolluted form in Japanese-ness. Unfortunately, I think he makes uh, the, the mistake in that regard that he does not make in his depiction of Christian tradition. What I'm wondering about, I'm still wondering about John's question from earlier, because it's an important one. Because, Paul, you've described before that, you know, your problem with some of the forms of institutional Christianity is that they imagine that they have the stuff, that they're the gatekeepers of the stuff, of the real, of the real, you know, that you, that, that that's, a, that's a problem for you, right? So that, uh, because it's a, you know, it's mediated by an institution or a priest or, or whatever, and they, they're kind of the guardians and they say, well, you can't have, you know, you can't have the stuff because you're not one of us, right? So is, is that a fair summation of, of some of your thoughts? Because if that's true, if it is, you know, and you can nuance it and talk about it. Yeah, I wouldn't, you've not stated it exactly. And that is the, can any of us do away with institutions? I think Hart himself actually is an anarchist. 
and uh, yeah. uh, that is he believes christianity is a kind of an anarchist understanding that's why i would disagree with what you said earlier about shintoism because he is an anarchist so he would say well any institution that can't justify its existence you know any institution any religion any tradition anything if it can't justify its own existence it deserves to be called into question so he's saying that about even christian tradition but in other words that there is the sense uh, none of us can just that this is a process that of deconstruction that we're surrounded by this thing we're submerged in this world and so it's no no easy thing and and in fact there is the sense the the seeming necessities of the institution so i don't imagine that anybody can in other words what where i'm at can't be reduplicated i've gotten to this place just because uh, i've been thrown out of every kind of institution that you know oh you could go to rci classes any week you want to <laughs> Uh, no, and no, I wouldn't last very long. In other words, that I, I understand that that being anarchic and anti-institutional and low church and house church and you know that that's probably not for most people even a possibility. And so, what has mediated to us then is the possibility of fellowship of a of a place to go and meet Christ, and that the institution may inf that is a kind of the reality of people's lives. Can anybody be completely to imagine that we could do away with the institution? I I, I guess that we can't. In other words, that's part of the the organization and structure. But what we can do is always be on guard against the failures, the oppressions, the violence that seem to be integral to institutions. Anarchy can be pretty violent too. So I don't know, yeah, but, yeah. What? It, um, it, anyway. Yeah, not a not a you know nineteenth century notion of anarchy that we need to go back and redefine the word. I mean, this is why anti so anti archaic. That is the RK, the principalities and powers, and not an anarchism as in a revolutionary, violent revolutionary anarchism. And so I think I that mean, hard not having oversight it can be a pretty dangerous thing. Like, I mean, history is so pesky, but it's like in the last hundred, if we're just talking about religious movement, well, I don't know. I should say both because of the Roman Catholic Church, I guess. I was saying you just have you have as much of a chance of getting abused by somebody who has no bishop over them who's meeting in his house with you as you do in yeah oh absolutely so absolutely. Uh, I just don't yeah. know I I always find this like what makes an institution an institution I don't know but uh, it seems like we we always have some sort of contractual social agreements with each other and that's just the way we do life and what you know people are sinners but. But I want to ask Paul, so, you know, you've been doing some early Christian studies, which I think is really cool. You've been looking at people like Irenaeus, Origen. I love, I've been doing the same thing. I, I, I don't know why I didn't start with the fathers, you know, sooner. And again, a lot of times we speak about the Holy Fathers as Orthodox Christians as if it's some sort of, you know, one voice. It's not. You're an Episcopalian, say fathers and mothers. We yeah. don't usually actually make reference to any mothers, but you have to say fathers and mothers before you talk about Irenaeus or Origen. Probably you probably should, you know, who knows? But but it's like <laughs> I'm uh, making a joke of how ridiculous anyway. Go no, ahead. Yes. But, but but no, but yeah, but it's but it's 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 the speak of you know, it's it kind of points what I'm saying is that Christianity I don't think has one, you know, one voice, right? So so to to imagine that there's only one voice, you know, the vo if there's a voice, it's Christ, right? He is the logos, he is the voice of God. 
but he speaks and you know i think that what hart is getting at is that he he's everywhere present and filling all things in other words he speaks in the beautiful he speaks in the true he speaks in the good if you go outside and you hear the bird you know in other words like you, there, he speaks in the scriptures. He speaks through John and Paul and the Eucharist, and he's everywhere. And all creation is proclaiming him and praising him at all times. The sea monsters and the. But I was thinking about it, it was Ignatius, I think, right, uh, John? That, did he say something like, "Well, you know, wherever if there's no bishop, there's no church, or something like this," right? This is Ignatius of Antioch. Ignatius of Antioch. It's very so, early. You know, it's very early. So, Paul, I'm wondering, you know, what point do you have to kind of aim the the missile? at yourself right because i think that that's what i think that that's what david wants us to do i i, I was kind of joking earlier i was like i feel attacked you know but that's part of what he's trying to do right is, is to say is to humble us a little bit ironically again because he gets accused of being arrogant all the time i don't think i mean i just think that he knows he's you know secure in his identity um but you know it's like he's he's, he's a genius and he knows it you know it's it, it's true it's like i think that we do need to kind of that's part of what it means to be a christian is to say well wait a second I need to repent. You know, it's like, or, I've, or to be humble. Like to me, the most dangerous, and I've, I've thought this for a long time, that the most dangerous thing that can happen to us, especially as teachers, is to get to a place where you can't say you're wrong, where you can't admit and say, you know, because I think that this happens, that you get, that you can get so locked into a particular theological system or communion or tradition or whatever, that you, you know, to, to, to admit that you are wrong is to essentially sort of renounce your, you know, to sort of renounce everything that you're about. You this know, is it, the value of icons of St. Constantine and Helen. In other words, like, this is it. This is what we have. I mean, I'm a Nicene Christian. This is what we have. And, you know, enforced by a thug like Constantine, or worse, a thug like Justinian. And yeah. uh, so be it. Right. That's right. But, but how hard would it have been for someone like R.C. Sproul who, who, you know, is a great teacher, but he's so committed to his Calvinism, whatever, to, yeah. you know, to say, I got it wrong. I was yeah. wrong. You know, there, there's, there's no limited atonement. There's no, you know, in other yeah. words, like the, I think the heart wants us to, to look at ourselves and go, again, as a relatively recent convert to orthodoxy, I got to look at this and go, yeah, you know, I can't, I can't talk about tradition and use it as a sort of a weapon to say that, and John, John, you said that one of the most important things that someone's ever said to me in my life, thank you, you know, you said, Remember George McDonald. Never oh, forget, yeah. forget George McDonald, you know, because he, you know, George McDonald isn't an Orthodox Christian, but man, if you don't think that George McDonald is, is a, you know, he wasn't even an Anglican, some yeah, kind of congregationalist. You yeah, know? It's like, man, if you don't think someone like George McDonald uh, is a Christian, it's like, well, I don't know who is, you know, it's yeah. like, come on. And he's not Orthodox. So, but again, back to my question, because I do think that it relates to the whole issue of the sacraments and institutional Christianity and all this stuff that, you know, with Ignatius being as early as he was, was Ignatius was a student of Polycarp, who's a student of John. Is that right? Well, no, uh, that's, you're thinking of Irenaeus actually, but Ignatius may have written that around 125. So very early, very early. But, but but the gist of it is is where if there's no you know where there is no bishop there is no there's no church yeah. you know and so it's like and, and I think that so so in other words was Ignatius wrong would, would they do it? because I think that, so as Orthodox Christians we would say yeah you know James was the bishop he was the bishop over Jerusalem you know uh, in other words you can go back to the to the New Testament and say yeah that the, the institution really is sort of forming in in the scriptures and that that's what's happening in the, the Episcopal yeah. Yeah. And it's like, and it's, it's all, it's all unfolding. And then Ignatius comes along and says, yeah, you know, there is no church outside of the, you know, the authority of the bishop precisely because of what John's saying. And it's like that, that this thing can just get, it, 
it can become malformed, deformed into something that's not the gospel. So it puts Paul in a precarious position, right? It puts all of us, this whole well, thing. Well, I don't think Paul feels that way. I may feel that way about Paul, you know. Uh, but, but it's like. Your but, fear for my salvation? I'm fear for, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm fear for your salvation. You know? No, it, it's, uh, it, I'm, I'm, I'm half joking. But I, I am saying, though, you know, we all find ourselves in a precarious spot, right? Because I certainly, as an Orthodox Christian, would never want to say that I'm in John's out. I mean, that's ridiculous. Or I'm in my friend Tom Evans or something, as a, you know, or whatever, or, or, or my family and say things like this. Like, I think that that's silly. And so, but that kind of goes back to that communion question, right? A little bit, because that's what's at stake. It's like, I was asking, where's the church? Where, yeah, where's the church? And so to me, it's right here. I'm looking at, you know, I'm look, it's here. It's, uh, and it's in George McDonald. And, and it's not just it's because I think that the spirit of Christ was incarnate in George McDonald. And so whenever he wrote, it's like, you know, you, you're, you're coming into contact with not only the spirit of George McDonald, but the spirit of Christ, and the two are united. And that this is what, you know, good theology it always is. It's, Christ, it's ultimately the voice of Christ. So that voice of truth, that voice of the beautiful and the good, you know, it comes out through us. But ultimately, it's the voice of God. It's Christ. It's the logos of Christ that's being incarnate in, in you know, in the good and in the true and the beautiful. And so, but it does nonetheless put someone like all of us in a precarious position to kind of check ourselves. And to say, what's what am I is my is my hope, and what am I clinging to? Is it the tradition? Is it the institution? Is it the is it my understanding, my interpretation of the scriptures? Right, this happens in Protestant. The word you know that says right here in the Bible. It's like, well, okay, is that what you're clinging to? Because it's like I think that what Hart would want to say is that anything short of the logos, wherever it may be found, is inadequate. Tradition is apocalypse is not saying, oh, this, this, we have to say no to this for whatever reason, uh, because we've only got the right way. What you're saying no to is apparently dead ends. You're saying this line of thinking or this idea or this practice is a dead end that ultimately uh, it's not going to deliver. It's not going to bring you into the fullness of union with God. And probably dead ends involves dead people. Right. Kill, killing off your enemies, uh, doing in, doing away with the heretics. But apparently, so does the. See, this is this is why I, I'm. I think this is Hart's hesitant of saying that. Actually, that to make history that clear cut is dangerous. You don't know what's an act, what's accidental or incidental to something, and what's of necessity to something. The tradition is actually authentic. The one that we have, uh, Chalcedon, Ephesus, all this. And sure, like at some point you have the empire killing people. Does that invalidate the tradition? No, I don't think so, actually. But is killing uh, people invalid? Is it a true reflection? Yes, yes, I think it's a sin. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, that's the point. But I don't think you can make those causal. That's, that's really what he's getting at against Newman. You can't make those sort of causal, uh, you know, mechanistic or organistic sort of moves in history. Because they're all indefensible. I mean, it's just ridiculous yeah, um, as yeah. a finite person to say something like that. Yeah, yeah that's the value of the, the first part of the book, is that in a sense, I think everybody gets implicated in the project of Newman and Blondell. That's probably what most of us would have done at one time. Yeah. That is kind of our instinct. Well, I know this will puzzle fit together. I just need to squeeze this piece in here really tight and i kind of need to forget the pieces that i've left out you're not going to put the puzzle together it's just not going to work that in and of itself that part of the project is quite valuable oh so here's where i get indicted because you know i i was in the habit of saying or i still 
I find pleasure in saying something like, you know, nominalist Lutheranism leads to, leads directly to Nazism. It's necessary that that would be the end. <laughs> you can't say that. That's really what Hart is saying. The, that sort of way of thinking about history and tradition is too flawed. That no, to say that of necessity, a sort of nominalistic, voluntaristic Lutheranism leads to Nazism. You can't defend that sort of position historically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Matt, I think you're you're wanting me to do a self critique. I was gonna yeah, I was gonna ask ask you to give us our we've been going for a while, so I was gonna say that you could bring it home for us. And I I always like when Paul critiques himself. <laughs> but you understand that's been my whole life. Right, right. Uh, that that there's nobody who's had a more gradual metamorphosis in which it's been one long, painful recognition of the blunders failures i'm coming out of uh, a fundamentalism of even i didn't even know the word uh inerrancy uh you know all of the the stuff that i am looking at and saying wow that was i'm not that's not other people i'm talking about me this has been a, a process that i've gone through for my entire Christian life. I would like to think that I've saved you guys some of the pain that I've been through. I hope in that sense that I've that I've been able to set to, to hand you this and say, you know, this is a dead end. Mm. This is going nowhere. Mm. I, I had to ram my head up against that wall a long time mm. to get beyond it. I see the theological project as very much in involving us in a continual self-critique, self-criticism. And maybe because I am such a perverse individual, I have a hard time pointing out and saying, well, at this date, at this time, I rejected this idea, and I realized what an idiot I had been. Uh, probably what I'd like to do is just kind of smooth that over and say, ah. But no, that's been the, the reality of my my Christian walk. It is a continual. I think I, I think I've made progress. I think that this is unfolding, and I look to make more progress. But I, I don't see it. In words, I th- as you've described it, that it is an entry into love. It's an entry into peace. That it's an entry into a a, a life of beauty. That is, I think, an integral part of the theological journey that that I think the three of us have been on together that we've done this thing that we've we've shared in this and it's it's beautiful and that depth of friendship that depth of conversation that we've shared as you've described it Matt that is the fellowship of Christ that we've enjoyed and our tendency is to obstruct that is to put into place things that wouldn't allow for that I mean, Christ describes it, that they may be one as you and I are one. You know what I mean? Like that that's theosis, right? Is that when we're in communion and we're having this conversation and yeah, we might have different ideas or we might jab at each other here and there or whatever and just try to bring out the best in one another or whatever. Um, it's like that to me to imagine that it's something other than that, you know, that that's primary. It's like, no, man, this was it. This is what, you know, this is awesome. I, but isn't Paul the journey that you described? Like that's the journey of conversion. You know, and that's what each, you know, you describe taking up a cross. It is a painful thing. And it is a pain. And and by the way, we've all, you know, lost stuff along the way that we were, that were dear to us, whether it was different forms of identifying ourselves or different habits or 
family or just friends or, or you know, the jobs or whatever else that we've lost along the way, that, that process of conversion, I, I would think is like probably how tradition also functions, right? That we're, the tradition itself is continually uh, being converted from glory to glory because it isn't the, what the tradition at the end of the day is, is it's a collection of human beings who are filled, I, I would think, through, you know, at least for the people who, like I like what, you know, John said about Nicaea, that these guys are coming together and comparing their scholars. You know, these are these are bishops. These are men who love our Lord Jesus Christ. Like they're committed to this thing and they come together, you know, and they, they, they're talking this thing out and they're, and so Christ is there in their midst in some way, right? Just like he's been here with us and they're, they're trying to come to these different, you know, to sort of discuss the parameters and things like this that we've talked about in this podcast. If Christ was in, Christ is incarnate then in, in history, in the history of the church and in, in these in these ideas, right? And in these people who were being converted themselves. Tradition is really is a construct in the sense that it's human. It, it but it's also divine. It's like a little picture of theosis, right? It's like it's the Holy Spirit, it's Christ, it's you know, incarnate in the community of the faithful and of the believers to have this conversation that's a continual unfolding of the glory of Christ that we just keep going from, you know, we keep saying, wow, it's bigger than we thought. That's what Hart wants to say in this book is that what traditionalism, historicism, extrinsicism, however you say it's like what it would want to do is to reduce the glory of Christ, to reduce, to minimize in some way the glory of the, the gospel. Whereas what I think Hart wants to say is, is that no, it's an infinite from glory to glory, a movement of the spirit throughout history. It's often been bloody, as we've noted. You know, there's definitely been profound failures along the way, and there still are now. I know in my life, again, that, but this is the process of conversion, right? I, I, I asked a guy, a monk one time up in Michigan, I went to, to, to visit a monastery up there, and I asked the monk, I said, so what do you guys do around here? He said, well, we fall and we rise, and we fall and we rise. And it's like, it's kind of a profound thing. And isn't that the tradition? Isn't that what the faith? Isn't that what the church is? It's like a continual unfolding of conversion yeah, to an so ever, ever an increasing, infinite outpouring of the wellspring of truth and goodness that will be flowing presumably forever. Uh, there is no end. There is no end to the glory of God. It's infinite. So there's no there's no there's no end to the wisdom of God. It's infinite. The, the, the gnosis, all these different things that we can that we're going to be worshiping. I don't think it's just going to be hands up in the air. I mean, it's going to be a celebration of the, the, the human language in some way is going to share in, you know, we're going to be praising God with our conversations and stuff like that. Oh, so, amen. That's, that's a wonderful summary. Yeah. So Paul, bring it on home, you know, make sure that you, you, you already critiqued yourself. Oh, you guys always make my life painful. I have to turn and. <laughs> oh, I was thinking uh, that's Matt. We were describing is really just sort of that's why Irenaeus describes being human. Start out as immature, and you grow into the full the image and the likeness of God. Actually, that's really what we're always up against. Maybe just as Western Christians, I don't know, but we have this sort of implicit notion that older is better. So you get different forms of that. You get like the conservative traditionalist version but that's really what the german you know liberal theologians were doing too it's like if you could just get back to the real thing behind the bible yeah. um, you know the pure thing is back there somewhere mm -hmm. uh, whereas the christian yeah the colonel uh, the christian idea is just the opposite it's like well no the real thing is and you know is the apocalypse it's before you it's outside of history isn't that what paul was saying earlier about that there that heart seems to be saying that it's it's something outside I don't that's what we've all said i mean that's all he's saying is antecedent whenever he says there's an antecedent final causality 
in time and space because of Jesus Christ. That's all. That's what Hart is saying. Mm -hmm. So a transcendence that there's that there's something more. I mean, he, final. Yeah, he keeps on talking about the something more, something more, which is a wonderful thought. That in other words, like I think that like the traditionalists, that's in all of us, would want to contain the truth. Oh yeah. You, well, you just want to preserve what's already been given. The whole point of the book is to say, well, what's already been given isn't enough. <laughs> right. Yes. There's more coming in. And that we should preserve, we should preserve the good and the true and the beautiful. We should absolutely preserve it. You know, well, the good, the true, and the beautiful aren't things that can be, they, they just are. They're infinite. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, they're not. So yeah. So, so they're that, that evermore uh, to me, obviously, then entails like that, like theology can make progress. That, but really, what do we mean by theology can make progress? I, I think that we're trying to become more like Christ, right? Like that, that progress is to become God. To be God. Hart's next book is "You Are Gods." You know, oh, yeah, so, that's this. That's the point of this book too, right? Yeah. Theosis is the goal. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the trajectory of the authorship. Again, I do think that he's got a bigger. You know, he's got a, He's got a plan or whatever. I have no idea what that looks like, but it's you know the next book. I think it's in April. Is uh, you are gods, where he's going to talk about okay. So again, we would want to put in these strict sort of, you know, divisions between nature and grace, faith and works, uh, right? He's going to go all the way through nature and supernatural, you know, so that he's using. And that was the only problem I told Paul. I really loved his blog this morning. I just didn't like the last sentence because he said something about doing something about all this is an imperative that, you know, David has not. He himself says that there is no practical, you know, he's not laid out any practical project. And there is no, you know, what do you do about this? Well, he's relieved uh, the his readers and himself <laughs> of any, of doing anything about it. And what I would say is, no, probably we need to say more that there are things that uh, we, we need to do and that we need to take up the project of being peaceable, really following Christ, that there are some things that are not worthy of Christ and some things that are worthy of Christ. And we need to, to live that out and, and to experience uh, the peace of Christ in our lives. There is a, an impetus to do something. That is, there is a practical, there is the necessity of a practical application. And be sure to tune into the next episode of Forging Plowshares to find out what those things are. <laughs> Love you guys. This is great, great conversation. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.